her tapestry, a fragile strip of medieval linen covered in embroidery, telling the story of the Battle of Hastings, wrangled over by so many during the Second World War, French and German, and transported no less than five times on open roads with little protection from Allied bombing. Comprising of 58 scenes, 25 taking place in France and 33 in England, 10 depicting the actual Battle of Hastings. The tapestry uses nine sections of linen stitched together and over-embroidered to hide each scene. Ten shades of wool provide perspective and depth, incorporating 626 characters, 37 buildings, including the magical Mont Saint-Michel. I love that place. 41 boats, 190 horses, 35 dogs and 57 Latin inscriptions. Whoa, now that's an undertaking just for me to say. Imagine the designer and the embroiderers working on this. The Bayer Tapestry was always a majestic undertaking. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The Germans wanted to use the imagery in the tapestry to further their own narrative, briefing the Ananoba to make a definitive study of the tapestry for publication in a multi-volume book by the Art Historical Institute, portraying the radiance of Viking culture using the advanced scientific techniques only German scholars had mastered. They claimed the French had not properly appreciated or documented the work. This excerpt from a 2018 study by Shirley Ann Brown, published in the BBC History magazine, states this. They envisioned a book that would present essays on the past scholarship of the embroidery, its physical details, its historical authority and its significance for history and culture. The book would also contain a study of the fabric and embroidery and an analysis of its colour. It was put to Himmler that the tapestry was to become a new building block in the spiritual foundations of the Germanic Empire. Going further to say, it was so truly German a monument that it must inevitably be returned to its homeland. 
This appealed to Himmler, who was obsessed with the idea that the SS was a revival of the Teutonic Knights and that the castle of Wevelsberg was to become the home of the Nazi version of the Knights of the Round Table. Even having a crypt named Valhalla designed to hold the ashes of SS leaders. To undermine the tapestry's French heritage, it was to be used as an exemplar of the Aryan spirit, proving beyond doubt that the Ananerba project was for purely propaganda purposes. Finally, June 23 came and the tapestry was transported to Monday Abbey, founded in 1200 and situated just nine miles south of Bayeux. Security measures had stated prior to the tapestry's removal that it must be accompanied by a fire extinguisher at all times and that it be guarded by its custodian and three customs men while in the Abbey. Goering's looting habits were well known, so all troops were to be denied access to the building. The status of the Ananerba's research into the tapestry was such that Herbert Jan Kuhn could command the services of top academic photographers of the time. Professor Richard Harmon of Marburg University and his assistants devised a special platformed mechanism fitted with an aperture for the camera, which could be lowered over the tapestry to capture every minute detail with vertical and oblique lighting provided by powerful lamps. Now, sadly, I can find no images or drawings of this platform and the actual photography of the tapestry. Indeed, where are all these images? They must exist somewhere, surely, and be looked at as a unique record of the tapestry from the 1940s. Photographer Rolf Alber began photographing the tapestry while it was still in Bayeux, but he was soon transferred to the Eastern Front. So Jan Kuhn, an experienced archaeological photographer, took over wanting 120 plates to be developed and printed immediately by a local photographer, who complained that this impinged on his own work. Eventually, the plates were sent to Paris to be developed. Frau Uhland of the Marburg Institute was sent as Albers' replacement and she was an expert in trichome photography, the blending of three primary colours to produce colour prints, exactly what Jan Kuhn required. Trouble was, Monday was a strictly masculine monastery, so she was denied entry. To accommodate Frau Uhland on site, the tapestry was moved to a neutral guest area downstairs. Now again, unbelievably, although assurances were given to the mayor that the fabric would not be touched, Frau Uhland was allowed to unpick a 50 centimetre section top and bottom of the 19th century lining, revealing the back of the panel where Guy and Harold were talking. Photographs were taken before she restitched it. 
Now, 50 centimetres is not a small section. And again, trying to locate these images, or indeed any images or sketches, has been fruitless. That'd be fascinating to see. In all my research, I can't find any publication of all this work by the Germans at this time. And I know there was a war on, but they did all this work during the war. The photographs, the research, the sketches and watercolours, they must still exist. So if anyone knows, please contact me via the uh, Stitch Safari Facebook page because I'd love to know. One sketch by Herbert Jeschke can be seen on the Bayeux Museum's website. It's a beautiful representation of the tapestry being rolled out of its concrete bunker. The Bayeux Museum News states that in 2019, the children of Herbert Jeschke made an exceptional donation of their father's work to the city of Bayeux. His widow had also presented some documentation and photographs in 1994. Now, Herbert Jeschke specialised in the analysis and reproduction of colours and was commissioned in 1941 to join a team of researchers from the Ananerba created by Himmler and led by Herbert Jankuhn. He was there to copy the whole tapestry in pen and watercolour, capturing the exact subtleties of colour and shades in order to outdo Stoddard's and Sansonetti's previous work. His work, consisting of notebooks, of sketches, watercolours and surveys, were forgotten and never published, but will now uh, be integrated into the museum, which is the guardian of this 11th century embroidery. So conservators will be able to follow the evolution of the state of the tapestry since the 1940s yet I can find only one of his sketches on their website. Himmler was now able to boast how the research led by Jean Kuhn demonstrated the importance which this tapestry bears for our glorious and cultured Germanic history. Two new experts were brought in. Otto Wies, who studied archetypes of the Führer figure and was a specialist in Vikings and their impact on Norman culture and institutions, and Professor Alfred Strange, a medieval historian. The tapestry was viewed by a number of visitors who took advantage of this opportunity to see the tapestry up close. It was even filmed by the SS and used in two propaganda documentaries about the research project. I can't even find those documentaries. I have no idea where all this research is. July 31 and research into the tapestry was complete and on August 1 the tapestry was trucked back to Bayeux and returned to its cellar. Oh, but it was still to be moved to the Chateau of Sauchet for safekeeping and that poor mayor of Bayeux faced yet more problems. Petrol was rationed and he and the Cayen prefect were told their demand for the 350 kilometre round trip was excessive. They were in an impossible situation, having been commanded to move the tapestry, but denied 
the supplies to do so. Being ever resourceful, they were loaned a converted 10 CV van by a local tradesman with an engine that ran on gas produced by burning wood or charcoal. Separate documents for each occupant in the vehicle were, were required, along with a permit allowing the movement of a, a historic monument. Plus, they had to complete their travel before the 10pm curfew or risk being arrested or shot. Ugh. They were to travel on August 18, but the paperwork hadn't arrived in time and did not allow for the necessary uh, round trip. So they couldn't start out until 5am the next day when all paperwork had finally been received. Everyone turned up at the Hotel de Doyon on time, but there was no truck. They found it a few streets away, piled with the requisite amounts of wood and charcoal, but the driver couldn't get the engine started. Finally, the fuel combusted and they loaded the tapestry and the very necessary fire extinguisher on board. But they were now running two hours late. The trip was excruciatingly slow as the van laboured so badly on hills. Two men had to hop out and push it to the crest, then race to jump back in again as it gained momentum on the downhill run. Stopping for lunch, they again faced problems reigniting the engine and did not arrive at the chateau until 5pm. The, the Chateau de Sorchères is a neoclassical chateau located near Le Mans and was built between 1761 and 1786. The roof and facade, as well as the main courtyard, moat and chapel, have been classified as historic monuments since 1947. During the uh, German occupation of France in World War II from 1940 to 45, the cellars of the castle were used by the French state to shelter a large number of artworks, including more than 700 paintings from the Louvre, some by Goya, Rubens, Veronese and other old masters, furniture from the Palace of Versailles, the Bayeux Tapestry, as well as priceless collections of jewellery and metalwork. Now my heart goes out to those men in that troublesome van as they had learned the lesson to not turn the engine off. So unloading the tapestry was done with the engine running and by now both the driver and his passengers were covered from head to foot in particles of soot released from the van's wood-burning engine. They immediately resumed their journey home, which was even slower than anticipated, and were offered the only accommodation available, jail cells in the small town of Alencon, usually reserved for black marketeers who thrived at this time of rationing by providing country food and wines to desperate Parisians or those who could afford to pay. Sarah Bauer, writing on the Historical Novel Society website, likens this journey to an episode of the British sitcom Allo Allo.
Here, the tapestry remains safe from Allied bombing for the next three years. Perhaps aided by the display of a large piece of fabric painted in huge white lettering spelling out Musée Louvre as a warning to passing pilots and crew. Research by the Ananerba continued during 1942 and 43, and was now in the process of compilation and editing. But Himmler's Ananerba, a cult of pagan medievalism, had a feudal ritual of gift-giving. So a selection of illustrations and a small portion of text were printed, bound and presented to Himmler on December 24. Again, I ask, where is this printed and bound work? A copy of Himmler's letter of thanks to the organisers still exists, however, stating the importance the Bayeux Tapestry holds for our glorious and cultured Germanic history. But that wasn't all. Lord Haw-Haw, Goebbels' English voice, the US-born Briton, William Joyce, based one of his broadcasts around the tapestry, fed by material provided to him by the Ministry of Propaganda, even going as far as to gloat that the tapestry would tour and be exhibited to neutral countries in order to warn them of the imminent invasion of England. Using an affected upper-class English accent, Joyce, a dedicated fascist, opened his broadcasts with Germany calling, Germany calling. Ironically, Joyce's broadcasts were initially popular with British audiences, attracting 6 million regular listeners and 18 million occasional listeners, thanks to his caustic rhetoric, a far cry from the far less entertaining, sombre, dry offerings from the BBC. Goebbels was immensely pleased. Yet these broadcasts had little effect, with listeners becoming tired of Joyce's contempt for and sarcasm about Britain. Broadcast to audiences in the United Kingdom as well as the United States, the English language propaganda radio program ran from 1939 to 1945, ending when the British Army overran Hamburg. Joyce was captured by the British forces and transported back to England. Put on trial, he was convicted of high treason and sentenced to death. He was hanged in 1946. These broadcasts, sponsored by the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, were an attempt to demoralise troops, the general population, and to suppress the effectiveness of the Allied war effort. A dignified British response to this broadcast was published in the Times on October 27, stating, All things noble and ignoble, fine and mean, are grist to Goebbels' machinery, to be perverted or pressed into the service of the might and right of the Third Reich arguing that the speaker for Germany had got it all wrong. He could hardly invoke the tapestry to predict future defeat or disgrace because now most English boast of their Norman heritage.
Its scenes of daily life and its careful crafting by Matilda provided a pleasing remembrance for our sock-knitting, pullover-wearing women folk. And finishes by saying that whatsoever the Nazi broadcaster, lecturer or pamphleteer may have to say, the Bayer Tapestry speaks for itself. Hear, hear. This letter generated a further response published a few days later, reminding readers that an earlier dictator, Napoleon, had also harnessed the tapestry to further his own invasion propaganda. And now this segues perfectly into my next episode, which brings into play the work of those worthy men and women from Bletchley Park, the principal centre of Allied code-breaking during World War II. Questions being asked in the English House of Commons and a link to the French resistance. And yes, of course, they all involve the Bayer Tapestry. I mean, fact is way better than fiction, right? I'm speechless at this ongoing saga and have to ask this. Has any other embroidery ever been faded to this degree over so many centuries and by such a variety of media? The answer has to be a resounding no, surely. Now, I thought I knew a little about the Bayer Tapestry, but in retrospect, it was a very little indeed. Thank you for hanging in there with me over this extraordinary journey. I appreciate your time and interest. I just feel that the celebrity of this embroidery should be shouted from the rooftops on a regular basis. The Bayer Tapestry really is at the forefront of narrative embroidery and embroidery as art. It's unique, emotive and truly remarkable, almost unbelievable history is breathtaking. Frankly, I think the story of the tapestry since it was made to the present day would make a fantastic documentary. Its life after creation forms a unique historical authority about the value seen in a narrative textile and is a story worth telling just as much as the story of the conquest was. Don't forget Stitched Safari is on Facebook and Instagram where I regularly post on both platforms. Till the next episode, bye for now.